Hello, my name is Richard Cox. I'm joined for our dialogue as usual today with, by Tim Freak. We've also got a guest along, Robert Rabin. Robert is the author of Radical Sages, A Spiritual Evolution of Activism, and that's what we're going to discuss today, activism. So, hello, gentlemen. Um, good morning. Good afternoon to you, Tim, and good morning to you, Robert, as we are on two different continents. Yes, we are. So, um, let's start with some brief introductions, and I think before we get into the activism, we need to really clearly define our foundation of what spirituality is. So, something that both of you gentlemen have been heavily involved in for many, many decades, longer than I've been alive, really. And, Thank you. Um, <laughs> well, so, well, as, as you're the author of the book, um, let's start with, with you, please. Can you say a little bit about what your journey in spirituality has been and how you define that term and how you don't define it, what it isn't to you? That's to me? Yes, please. Obviously, the elder of the three of us. Well, I don't use the word spirituality much anymore. It's become very uh, sort of vague and imprecise and can refer to so many different things. So I, I don't use it so much, but a very broad brush story of, I suppose, my entree to what I used to call spirituality was just began when I was 11 years old, living with my family in Italy, and I had a kind of awakening where I began to ask these basic questions, who am I and how shall I live? So those questions stuck with me and really informed my teenage years and through my 20s and 30s and so on. And I began to wander around looking for answers to those questions. This is back in the late 60s into the early 70s when we didn't have very much material as we do now. I mean, back in those days, we had maybe an Alan Watts book, a couple of Carlos Castaneda things, a couple of Zen Roshis had come over from India. Ramdas was just about to write his Be Here Now book. So there wasn't much, and as a result of these persistent questions that I needed answers to, I started traveling lived in Europe, the Middle East, traveled overland to India where I met my teacher, Swami Muktananda, in 1973, and lived with him uh, through his passing in 1982, and then continued on my way, basically as a writer and a speaker and a coach and a consultant, all those things. But with the compass directing my path in life, always those questions, who am I and how shall I live? So that's my history. And, but spirituality now, I don't know really what it is. So much of what I used to think of as being hardcore spirituality strikes me as being just self-evident common sense right now. You know, how spiritual do we need to be to take care of each other, to take care of the planet, to be nonviolent, you know, things like that. So I'll, I'll, I'll stop with that for now okay. and see where we go. Um, Tim, you've thought a lot about what spirituality is and isn't and how it's defined and not defined. And I, uh, it's interesting to hear Robert moved away from the word. I think we probably all have in, in some ways. So what would you give as a kind of a definition, a basis that we can build on? Uh, 
Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm the same, Robert, um, uh, as, as Richard alluded to, really, that I found the, the word a very difficult word. I use it when I need to uh, for exactly the same reasons um, associated with so much that. So for me, the word is a, the word spirit really conveys the essence of things to me. So the essence of who I am, but the essence of what all life is, the being of things. So spirituality, in, in the sense that I'm interested in it, is about looking deeper. What's the, what's the very essence of life? So not to get away from the surface of life, but to inform the surface. And uh, many people who know my work will know that, like you, it's almost identical. You know, I had a, a little bit later on, because I'm a little bit younger, I was, uh, had an awakening when I was 12, and it was seminal for me just the same and set me off on a journey which led to eventually lots of experiments with consciousness and lots of books and here I am with you how lovely and you know it's like those two young boys have have come together thanks to Richard and, and met in this particular nexus to go okay so it's the essence of things and what's so exciting why I loved coming across when when Sabine pointed in me in the direction of your work what, what, what I loved about it was that sense that it was returning back to how can we how can we bring something good into the world rather than the spirituality which was also there when i was coming across it in the 70s and 80s which seemed to be very much about for me and withdrawing somewhere mm. where it was i was away and safe yeah. well, well let me ask you that richard, richard excuse me one second yeah. Sorry, i'm going to take Tim's earlier off-camera invitation to jump in whenever yeah. we have something to say so excuse me but i just did want to agree with that, Tim. I wanted to say that I think if we're going to use the word spiritual or spirituality, for me it would mean what you said. It would be taking a deep dive beneath the surface of things to try to find some primal innate essence. And I might also say that the spirituality for me is is determined by the pursuit of those two questions that came, that embedded themselves in me many years ago. Who am I? Got to go deep to find that out. But also, how shall I live? Yeah. So there's got to be the connection to how we live in the world, not just a kind of narcissistic exploration that doesn't go anywhere. Mm -hmm. to, in fact, I might even begin to describe spirituality in terms of behavior instead of rhetoric. So I'm less interested in what people say on behalf of their, in quote, spirituality. I'm much more interested in watching how people act. What is the behavior? And maybe we could even, not at this moment, but I'm just saying, I've come to where spirituality for me has more to do with how we behave and how we act in the world rather than what we say. Richard, back to you. Okay, um, I'm curious to know, because there are these kind of two ways of the people go into spirituality. In, in one, um, people get into it and it goes very, very much hand in hand with more engagement into the world, more concern about global issues. But then you have this kind of classical view of renouncing the world as well and moving away from it. And um, I'm curious to know, in your own lives is it was always the case that the day you you got into or embraced this kind of more spiritual vision did it also inspire you to um look out into the world at the kind of political global situations and think about how it could change in alignment with the more inner world you were discovering mm. or did that come later 
I would say for me, it, they came hand in hand. It was completely natural. The two came together. And then as I got older, so now in my teens and 20s, it felt like I needed to make an inner journey to be then ready to do something in the world that I wasn't, I was young and that I needed to root myself in a deeper experience of awakening to spirit, finding something within myself in order to then go and do anything in the world. So I think it was always there, but there was a period of withdrawal. And the key thing for me, let me put this out here now, because this is absolutely essential for, for, for how it's been for me and how it looks, is love. Because right from the start, from when I was a young boy, the overwhelming experience of this waking up was one of love. And the nature of love demands to be shared. It is, it's reaching out. It is action. Like you were saying, Robert, it's not just, oh, well, this is nice for me. It's also, oh, I, I want to reach out. There's a compassion is embracing of suffering and uh, not avoiding of it. And, and so for me, the link between the individual awakening and then the, the state of service in the world is love. I had uh, a different orientation. I came to a social awareness or I came more to understand my responsibility as a person living in society much later than my initial interest in the who am I part. So, you know, I spent 10 years living in an ashram with Swami Muktananda, and I was supposed the aim of that work was a kind of self-transcendence and merging with the divine or the absolute consciousness, whatever we might say about it. So I was pretty much swept away into a transcendently oriented spiritual path. And it was only, I think it was in about 2003, just as the U.S. was invading Iraq, that I had really, really a shocking and profound awakening as profound and real as the Shaktipat experience, uh, the Kundalini awakening experience I'd had with Muktananda in the early 70s. It was, and I was living in an apartment in Sausalito, in, uh, just north of San Francisco, as watching on TV with Tom Brokaw talking about the shock and awe of the bombardment of Baghdad. And I just, I freaked out. I went into the corner of the living room as if Sausalito were being attacked. And I started crying and shaking as if I were in Baghdad because the insanity of it just overwhelmed me completely. And it was really from there, from that moment, that I began the Radical Sages Project and I suppose developed what... Tim had developed earlier, which is a sense of the connection between the inner and the outer, which from then on has become inseparable. It's like you can't even begin to talk about inner awareness without at the same time at least acknowledging that we all do live in a society. And the question then becomes not whether or not we're spiritual activists, but how consciously, how purposefully, how intentionally do we live as citizens in our society. So for me, it came much later than for Tim 
I think there's also, wouldn't you say, would you say this is, this is true, Robert? You know, you obviously spent a lot of time with the Eastern tradition. I was very influenced by also, not as deeply, I don't think, as yourself. But, you know, it certainly was big, it was in the air, it was, you know, we were full of it. And there's something, there's something very old in it, and there's mm. something quite life-denying or, or world-renouncing about it. So that the that what you get clearly in the, is this kind of idea that the aim of spirituality is elsewhere. And, and one of the things which has changed for me as I've got older is it doesn't feel like that. Yeah. It doesn't feel like life is a mistake to get away from or that the, you know, an illusion to escape or that the, the real thing is somewhere else. It feels like somewhere else is also wonderful, but this is important too. And that what we're doing here and the journey we're on and the evolution of the whole of, the, the universe and, and our particular planet and life on it and our role in that is essential to what existence is. It's not peripheral in some way. I, I do very much agree with that. Houston Smith, who is a, a author, philosopher, and scholar, uh, someone that I admire a lot, his, one of his aphorisms is the goal of spiritual practice is not altered states, but altered traits. So uh, I really love that, you know, that it's more behavior based. How do we, how do we become transformed or different or more spiritualized through our practice in terms of how we behave? I do think that a lot of the Eastern traditions that are still alive uh, in the West here have their roots in monasticism, yeah. millennia old. Yeah. So I think absolutely that the, the, the origins of many of those systems really don't have a lot of relevance to what's happening in our world today unless we want to get off the grid completely and go live somewhere in a monastery and pursue a monastic vision of self-realization, if you like. I'm more concerned with the societies in which we live, what's going on around us in our communities, and what, what does an awareness of those issues in our society call from us in terms of a response, in terms of engagement, in terms of participation, from the, let's say, the spiritual center uh, of our being. So I do agree with that. Can I, can I add, Richard, is it okay for me to yeah, keep yeah. on this thread for a moment? Just because I see very Richard. Richard, yes. thank you for coming. Yeah. <laughs> You've got two of us to handle. It's too much. Tim and I are good to go. Yeah, it's terrible. <laughs> you know, you knew this was going to happen. Because it, it feels, because one way that it seems to me is like, when I describe my own journey, and really you describe the same essential archetypal journey i'm guessing is that whilst i did have that sense straight away i also had to take a long period really where i withdrew yes. and i'd say i'm still only coming out of that over the last period of my life i'm i am steadily coming out and i still feel there's a lot further to go to come out and i wonder whether collectively it's been a bit the same that that we needed people to to really focus in caves and monasteries and all of that way to, to allow the facility to become conscious of these deep awake states yeah. 
to arise and that once the, that some human beings had, it becomes easier for other human beings to mm -hmm. do that. And that we are able now to make the journey back because others before us have made the journey out. And then, therefore, there's a kind of out-breath and in-breath, if you like, yeah. Yeah. that opens it up. And I'm immensely grateful to those ancient traditions. It's just I don't think we need to be – but we need to let them evolve and turn into what they need to be now. We do seem to be on more of an out-breath. Like, I actually wondered about the value of discussing this a lot because the people I meet, and maybe that's because I'm meeting them because they're like me, but – there's not this kind of renouncing the world non-dualism going on where I actually encounter it more is in magical manifesting thinking and the idea that we shouldn't engage with the world because it's all the reflection of mind. So what we should do is go within and project better thoughts outwards and that will change the world. That will be uh, what does things rather than actual engagement. And I think there might be something similar going on there that as a, society at large and uh, the people that are into this we're still really getting our head around this idea that thought and the world has some sort of direct relationship and a part of getting our heads around that is people going to a kind of extreme with it as was done with the non-dual traditions one of the things which is absolutely central to me uh robert is what i call paralogical thinking or both and thinking thinking in opposites and the way that we need to embrace opposites all the time so for me the problem with that kind of magical thinking is not that there's not a value because sometimes it, i really think it is and our intentionality is hugely important it's just not not just that yes it's like let's have good intentions and let's act on them yeah. let's take time to withdraw into our deep center and yeah. find that deep stillness and then let's act from there that the opposites can coexist. We don't have to choose between one or the other. We can have both. And, we, and, and ideally, we are both. So why not be both? Okay, so I, I think we're sufficiently of one mind on this, that there, there may be periods where it's necessary to draw in, but overwhelmingly we feel the desire to, to move outwards into the world too. Um, that's a great morgue to have. <laughs> what, what is that? Oh, yeah, big love. Okay. Yeah. Oh, oh, no. Um, I have one, but there's nothing on it. Oh. But yours is bigger. <laughs> well, let's come on. Tim. This is for this is a general program. Let's not go there. Richard, no one's before, like, you, no one's like, before we, you jump in, like, could I just add a very quick thing? And I'll speak anecdotally, which is certainly I spent many, many years in what we could call a retreat or withdrawal from active participation in life. I lived in an Indian ashram and so on. But the way I look at that now in the rearview mirror of today is even with my personal withdrawal and interest in what we call the inner, the fact is I still always lived in a social environment. Yeah. I lived in the ashram, I lived in India, I lived in ashrams throughout America, I traveled around the world. And the thing that I do want to just drop in quickly, even during those, those for me, very necessary time of retreat, so I could just you know, dive as deeply as I could into the inner richness, even as I was doing that and, and grateful for the opportunity, in the rearview mirror of now, I have to recognize that in, even in order to do that, I was taking the benefits and the blessings and the prerogatives of whichever society I lived in that allowed me to do that. 
There were some countries that if I lived in, there were no ashrams, there were no gurus, there were no teachings, and I wouldn't have had the right to do that. So what I want to just drop in, which is an expression of how I see things now, even if we are living in a monastic environment, even if our spiritual orientation is still, uh, Tim, what you uh, talked about as being absolute, the absolutism of, let's say, non-dual view or something, whatever it may be, the fact of the matter is we still do live in a society, and I think it's at least good manners. <laughs> you know, it's at least good manners to appreciate and therefore in some way engage with the way our society even allows us to do that. So if you're going to have a satsang and talk about awareness being aware of itself and only consciousness exists, and there isn't anybody, I'm, I'm not sure we would want to get on an airplane and normally where we would hear the pilot come on and say, you know, this is your pilot, Tim Freak, and we are going together to Frankfurt, Germany. I'm not sure you want to hear the cackle of the intercom followed by, hello, no one is flying the plane today. So, you know. We may be late, but time is an illusion. I wouldn't want to be in a plane too with flying. And nobody knows where the hell we're going. <laughs> you know, so... There's nowhere to go, Robert, don't you know? I'm learning slowly, Tim. <laughs> I'm going to come to England and take your next program. <laughs> so I just think we, it's worth noting that even as we pursue intense sadhana or, or, or tapasya, you know, intense spiritual work, which I am in favor of, what if, as an evolution from the monastic origins, what if we recontextualized that deep work so that it included at least some kind of mention or some kind of relationship to the fact, and it is a fact, that we live in a society and we feed it the same trough as everybody else, and if we're going to have a conference in San Francisco about non-duality, just as an example, Richard mentioned that, um, let's be mindful that if we had that same conference in Aleppo, Syria, I'm not sure the dialogues would be the same. Or if in San Francisco, or Tim, I know you were at a SAND conference somewhere in Europe, I don't know exactly where, but, you know, we take for granted that we turn on the faucet and water comes out, the electricity will come on, the meals will be served, we're probably not going to get bombed by drones or missiles. So, you know, all I'm saying is somewhere in the midst of all of that, I think it's important that we begin to conduct this deep level of spirituality, of inquiry and self-knowing, with the fact we do exist in, in a social environment. Beautiful. Yeah. So moving that thought along then, where does this self-inquiry into the depths of consciousness, what does it look like when it emerges out and touches the spiritually world of politics, of economics? Because I think talking to both of you on email before, I think we might all have had the experience of going in and uh, having these experiences um, of consciousness and then having political opinions 
and believing that our political opinions can be directly derived from our inner experience of consciousness. And of course, I'm like this because of that. Yeah. And then assuming that other people into this conscious exploration will have the same conclusions. And this is something I observe on your um, retreats, Tim, that people get together and they talk with a great sense of oneness about spirituality, about consciousness, about their exploration of this. And there's a lot of agreement. And then sometime on the second day, the subject of politics and economics will come up. And there's quite a bit of agreement, but some people, there can be quite a lot of shock too to but find out that the person across the dinner table <laughs> um, doesn't hold the same opinions. Yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's astonishing to me that everyone doesn't agree with me. Yeah, no, I, I'm convinced like that, that um, uh, I'm convinced that the natural conclusion of Advaita Vedanta, when you take it out into the world, is uh, unregulated free market capitalism. Because I'm just that way out, right? So on your groups, I go and sit in a corner with um, the one person I've ever found who agreed with that, and we talk about Austrian economics. Uh, if it's not other people there, like Jeremy Corbyn. So, I mean, what can? I, so, so my point so, is, we're so, coming against each other. So here's here's the thing. Look, the people, it's not just politics and economics, it's everything, isn't it? Because actually, if people at my groups will tend to come because around spirituality, they resonate with what I say. But if you took a wider group of people who are into spirituality, you would find people who disagree violently with what I say and think I'm completely lost and that I'm stuck in duality and that I've really missed the whole point. And I'm told, you know, regularly by people that that is the case. And maybe they're right. So, it, you know, it's not about that agreement is not guaranteed from this place. Mm. But what does seem to be essential to me, and, and, and again, you know, we're talking about people's individual experience. So what happens to people when they've first awoken or maybe after some years is all very different. Everyone's journey is different. Let me just say the things where I think we can meet if we go deeper enough. First and foremost, mystery that nobody knows. And if we can have that humility of it is an enormous mystery, then we agree. And then from that place, we can share what we share. The other thing we can find, I think, is a sense of uh, communion, oneness, commonality, and from that love. So there's benevolence. There's good intention. So whether you think this is the solution and I think that is the solution, or often just, just disagree about facts. I think these facts are true. I know I think these facts are true. All of that. If we can do that from this two fundamental things, one is we're all just guessing, we're doing our best, and we're doing our best from a benevolent place of love, then we can disagree with each other and look for the greatest insight. And if you do come up from a place of mystery, in my experience, the greatest delight is when someone says something you may not agree with and you suddenly get it. And, you, and you're, you, there is no, no more thrill than when somebody transforms your point of view, if mm -hmm. me, and you find you've been wrong wow god i've never seen it like that that's amazing that's really in, you know that moment uh, so those would be my foundations mystery and love robert i know you've had um i, I read in your book about uh, in the organizations you set up there was involvement of people of very diverse views and objections to those views i think particularly um you mentioned a chapter that you were involved in some way with uh, david ray griffin the 9-11 scholar who is part of the a prominent figure in the 9-11 truth movement and people objected to that what's your experience been in this way of um meeting a diversity of opinion <laughs> 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 uh, 
<laughs> it's not very often that I am rendered speechless. <laughs> so give me a moment. I know we're recording to, right. <clears throat> to um, make something up. <laughs> Before I answer that question, Richard, let me just make a comment about what Tim said, which I happen to agree with the sense of mystery and we don't, no one really knows. Existence to me, which is the word I use for the universe, the existence is a very large place. <laughs> and it's kind of like a cosmic Disneyland. You know, there's just, it's a never ending experience. However, I've noticed that a lot of people enter and stay on their various spiritual paths because they want to know some things with certainty, mm -hmm. that we, we, we don't actually want to continue to learn past the point we've discovered something that settled whatever the issue was that propelled us. So I, while I personally agree, when I, a lot of my work these days is through what I call speaking truthfully. It's where I do master classes and authentic self-expression and so on. And one of the things that I talk about a lot there is there's a big difference between trying to be or needing to be right and just wanting to be real, which is just tell me what's so for you now, as opposed to then saying, here's my truth in the moment and I'm right and you're not, and that settles everything. So I think, yes, we want to keep open not just to the mysteries of existence but certainly to other people yes i did have just bouncing back quickly richard when i started radical sages in uh, 2003 or 4 it, it was founded on my belief at the time that spiritual people like me would all believe the same thing, want the same thing and act in the same way. And the basic idea behind that initiative was to get American citizens involved in the electoral process so we could vote George Bush out of office before his second term. And I thought that was really a self-evident and obvious thing that all spiritual intelligent people would wanna do. But then, I started getting hate mail from a group called Buddhists for Bush. Then I got more hate mail from yoga teachers and meditation teachers who kept saying, you know, I've lost my way. I don't know what I'm talking about. There's a special place in hell for people like me, which I like because, you know, I've always wanted to be special. So if there's a special place for me somewhere, I'll probably want to go there, even if it is. So I learned, uh, uh, I learned that, in fact, no, we don't all see things the same way, especially when we move into social and political uh, issues and agendas. Um, here's how I would say about the commonality of all people, regardless of spirituality. If we ask everyone or anyone, don't you think they're going to somehow say, yes, I'm spiritual, and then tell you in what way? I mean, I think everyone is going to think of themselves as a spiritual being, whether we do or not, whether they're in Scientology or they follow A Course in Miracles or Tim's work 
or Advaita or Christianity or, you know, Kabbalah or Sufism or Islam. So I'm not even sure we're going to get very far in that way. Maybe there's something more fundamental, even before we become spiritual beings, that what is an intrinsic, innate part of our nature as human beings before we get corrupted by various belief systems and so on. And I think we could say certainly this, the, the sense of love or connectedness with other things, I think certainly there's a sense of caring for everything that we would want, a kind of generosity and caring and connectedness, which certainly from the meditative uh, traditions is one of the experiences, the sense of unity or connectedness. And if we can actually experience in non-dogmatic, simple, direct way that we are in fact connected to and are a part of everything, even that one thing alone would lead to a kind of caring that I think would really transform all of the issues that are in front of us politically and socially. If we would just care for what is in front of us as if it were our own self or our children, right? That everything, whether that we just care about that, it would seem to me the response would be instinctive and immediate and very beautiful. I, I yeah, I feel for, for me very much, I mean, the reason I've ended up doing the sort of things I do in the world rather than being involved in politics in any sort of or social change in, in a more proactive way, not because I wouldn't, but because I can't do everything, well, not right now anyway, but that is, is because it feels to me that, that the biggest way of changing society is not through policy, but through states of consciousness, and that policy needs to arrive from states of consciousness, and that whilst we're in a uh, why our state of consciousness is like this, then you've got just policies banging up against each other from that. If we can actually come together and go, look, we want to solve this mess, whatever one it is, and we are like this with each other, then there's a much better chance that the creativity of different perspectives will, will work together to nurture each other and come up with a creative solution rather than bash up against each other and just lead to wild swings between different points of view. Agreed. It, although it does bring us back to Richard's comment and speaking about the programs that he's observed that you do, Tim, when you bring social and political issues up, the question I would have is, and I think Richard asked this in the beginning, what does what we're calling higher consciousness or spiritual consciousness, what does it actually look like behaviorally what actually is it you know again for me i've become very simple as i get old everything seems self-evident and obvious which is to acknowledge that we live in a social environment and that we do receive the blessings and bounty of that, positive or negative. And so we have some, I think we have some obligation to participate consciously, purposefully, intentionally in the social order. There's a, there's a, 
sorry, sorry, Robert, go on. But just from a non-dogmatic place. But for, so for me, the higher consciousness has become just a simple matter of, can we calm our minds enough to feel something that flows everywhere? I, I, I call it silence. Some people might awareness, higher consciousness, but stilling the mind, just right, coming to a meditative way of being that is still very active and forceful, but it is peaceful and abiding and connects us to everything. If we can feel that actual sense of belonging to everywhere, to, to, to everything everywhere, then doesn't it seem our behavior is going to become more socially just, more sustainable, more peaceful, and so on, just as an automatic outflow of that simple understanding of how we're all actually connected and depend upon each other, minus the dogma. I, th I recall, um, with regard to what you're saying, Robert, about what does this look like? And um, when I've seen people in, in um, disagreement at spiritual events, at Tim's events, I do recall what was quite an influential experience for me. Um, I think one of the very first times I went to one of your seminars, Tim, and we were having dinner afterwards, and I was sat um, talking to uh, uh, someone who later became a friend at the table who held a different opinion to me on some issue, and I can't remember quite what it was, but I was putting the opposite case forward, and he was putting his case back. And then at a certain moment, he just dropped his position and saw things from my perspective. And I was left to reflect on that. It's a very unusual experience. And I felt as I got to know him more, um, there was a cultivation there of a deeper sense of self. And when we don't have that, when, when opinions become the self, mm. we attach them very strongly because an attack on my opinions is an attack on me. And this is really this is one of the major problems I see going on in um, in activism uh, now in 2016 with brexit in the uk and with trump uh, the election in the us i'm not talking about the results of those things but the consequence of them has been a more divided um society and with a kind of angry firing of intellectual points across the the trenches um and i, I see this language seems to be more and more prevalent on youtube of like very derogatory way of talking about people who have the opposite opinion um, to you do. And that's really what I think um, I was keen to, to dig into in this dialogue uh, was spirituality doesn't necessarily mean, okay, we back um, left-wing socialism or we back right-wing capitalism and we, and we run with that. It's about how that discussion is held and what it can do to facilitate that discussion. Mm. Yeah, exactly. The great thing about mystery is it leaves you open to truth in all forms and the great, th the ability to be able to tell the other person's story is a wonderfully deep thing. I agree with you completely, Richard. And that comes from having the freedom to, to know that you are, your identity is not your story. And, and that's a huge part of what's, what being more awake can, can offer, I, I feel, really can. I think the, the center of it all for me, I mean, I'm kind of saying the same thing, I guess, in another, um, what the, the phrase which I've got, it may turn it into a book, I think, but is love is a political act because I see that, um, that 
I've seen that, that love can be a, you know, a beautiful state. It can be a way of caring. And, but to actually get that it is all those things. And it's you know, merging with God and all of that. It's the beloved. And it's also a political act. It's also you are, by bringing love into the world and doing it consciously, you are changing the way society is, whether it's in the close up to you, whether it's in your work, or whether it's actually through activism just by doing it in that way and part of that is being able to to listen to the opposites to be able to have confrontation without it being confrontation to actually be able to open yourself to the thing which you're trying to change to to be able to find a place of connection with the person with donald trump who seems like the opposite perhaps Mm. Uh, that feels like this is this is what this is what those of us who've had the luxury or the opportunity, the good luck to investigate the essence of things. This is what we can bring to the party, what we can offer to the political party. Okay. Um, another issue I'd like to, to get your thoughts on, and this is one of, one of two things that came to my mind that I think people in activism perhaps really struggle with. The first one being communication. The second one is the sense of despondency that can arise from encountering this overwhelmingly huge problem of the world has this energy and it's going in a certain direction and you might think that's a terrible direction, but what can you do? And maybe maybe you, you do do something, you start a blog or you engage in some way and you put a lot of effort in and then it kind of falls a bit flat. Um, or you do a lot of work um, and I think in terms of the kind of protests that went on before the Iraq war, I think that, you know, was led some people to a sense of uh, futility at the end of it, that a million people marched through London and there was a lot of energy against that. And it just happened as if those protests didn't exist. So um, I can see why people get worn down over time with this. And maybe um, we've all encountered despondency in different ways, but do you have any thoughts or insights that would speak to that? Oof. Well, let me say this while Robert's contemplating, because what comes to mind for me is, well, what comes to mind actually for me is a fabulous T-shirt that I almost bought yesterday with a picture of Sisyphus pushing this, this yeah. up this hill. And underneath was a quote from Camus, which just said, and I love this, the quote from Camus said, one must imagine Sisyphus happy. And I say that to myself. Ever since I've seen it, I just repeat it to myself. One must imagine Sisyphus happy. Because that's how it feels, doesn't it? It's like you're forever, and by the time you've got it up, it's back at the bottom again. Because what we're engaging with is so huge, and you don't notice often the massive gains, which are huge, actually. The transformation that's happened in my lifetime is enormous. Um, but you're, you're looking always at the, all the new horrors. Uh, so there's a kind of what I, for me personally, the way that the despair passes when it arises is because there is something so powerful when I, I can sink into the depths of my being and so reassuring that you, I touch a fundamental goodness, which is so powerful and so strong that it gives me a faith, not in ideas, but a faith in, in the, 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 the goodness which exists at the essence of life. And if I didn't have that, then I would be overcome with despondency for sure. I, w- I wish, Tim, that you had bought that T-shirt. <laughs> I-, I would have loved to have seen that. 
I sometimes wear a t-shirt in my workshops that says I make stuff up just to let people <laughs> I can uh, remember in 2004 when I was so certain that we would not have a second term of George Bush it, w it just seemed like it would be impossible for that to happen and I had worked really hard for the year and a half before that and so on as did so many people that was my political view at the time and when he got elected I went to my I went to bed and I couldn't move for days I I, I can't remember before or since experiencing that kind of complete paralysis I was just stunned into total depression for days I couldn't fathom it so I, I, I'm saying that only to empathize with that overwhelm and, and sense of depression and so on you know back when I first started meditating years and years ago it was with a result in mind right if you meditate and chant and do this and this and this then you will become self-realized but I kept doing all of those things day after day after day after day for months and years and decades even though I didn't become self-realized so I think the way around overwhelm the way around feeling that our best efforts are ultimately ineffective is to realize that to bring uh, in, if I can borrow your phrase to bring love into the world as a political act or to participate in our community and our society on behalf of a non-dogmatic sense of connection and unity and caring with everything if we do that then for us that becomes the right way to live in other words the two questions that have still framed my existence are who am I and how shall I live not I got the who am I part some people would disagree but that's all right we can have a nice conversation about that I know who I am although I can't say but I'm not very far down the path of and how shall I live because the living environment is always changing and in the living environment are other people many of whom don't agree with me which is shocking because I'm quite sure I have the solution to everything so how shall I live well for me um, I want to live in a way that honors the immensity of existence first of all I want to live in a way that honors an evolutionary understanding of things you know 50 years ago the spiritual environment certainly in America was was so different than it is today and that's 50 years that's not even the blink of an eye in terms of let's say the four billion year history of the world so I think you know existence is immense we're on an evolutionary track so I don't want to change the world anymore I did I don't what I would like to do is have a positive effect 
in my day-to-day moving around in the world, when I meet the postman who delivers my mail, when I interact with two lovely gentlemen from the UK, when I post on Facebook, when I do a course, when I write in a letter or something. So I'm more concerned with can the, the next thought, can the next word, can the next act that I do be truthful and authentic as in coming from beneath the surface, coming from the depths, where I find enormous silence. And in that silence, I find all kinds of nonverbal, non-dogmatic revelations that look a lot like constant caring, constant caring. So, I'll stop with that. Okay. I would like to start to finish on a couple of really hopefully positive notes. I'd like to ask you both, are there any figures in the activist community or anything widely related to that, uh, maybe more than one, maybe a group, who you found particularly inspiring? So, uh, I didn't get that, Richard. Sorry. Any, anyone, any activist, um, okay. as loosely defined, as you would like that to be, who you've personally found particularly inspiring? Yeah, I can say uh, in, historically, when I was a boy, uh, I found uh, Mohandas Gandhi incredibly inspiring and studying his work and reading his autobiography when I was in my early teens was seminal for me. I became an active pacifist on his inspiration and very involved when I was at school and all of that. Um, more recently, um, right now in the UK, I'm picking up on this because you mentioned the gentleman, um, I find uh, the, the uh, patience of Jeremy Corbyn immensely inspiring, that he can be so attacked and yet doesn't come back with any uh, mm. comeback, doesn't attack back, and that he takes these attacks and just keeps to talking about ideas and not getting involved in putting individuals down in a culture in which it's all about putting each other down. And I find that kind and inspiring and it reminds me of my other great hero before him, Tony Benn, who was the same because he had that same quality. Um, And I want to give a shout out to someone none of you will know who's a dear friend of mine, Theo Simon, who I've walked my life with, uh, who he has spent his life going out and singing songs with a drum in protests across the, uh, the world actually and with his band seize the day yeah, I know. And yes. creating okay you do great um, who who is an immense source of inspiration because of you know he lives in a field and, and not literally but in a little place in a field and in and and really has very little and yet goes out with great generosity and represents things with such love and what he does and i find so inspiring is that he patronizes no one so to see, you know, see Theo with a, on, a, on a protest with, on a police line is an extraordinary thing to see because the police will be there going, sing another one, because he does it in such a way that he reaches out to everyone. And I think that's magnificent. Yeah. Mm. Before we 
joined each other online, I thought I would look up the word activist. I didn't have much luck with spiritual, but I thought, well, what exactly is an activist? And at least the dictionary says activism is, or an activist is someone who campaigns for social or political change. So it's someone who, but the way I look at it is we're all doing that in one way or another simply because we're alive in whatever place we are. So it's, whether we're campaigning or not, we're taking up space and that becomes a statement of our activism. But uh, who do I admire? So many people. I've been following the women's, I uh, just made a note of it, the women's, sorry, the Nobel Women's Initiative, which is a, oh, it's such a gorgeous site. And they profile women around the world who at a grassroots level are involved in activism, as in campaigning for social and political reform, whether it's around gender equality, education for girls, uh, you know, lifting people up out of poverty. But the stories that they profile on their website are so heartening because there are these women with seemingly with very little resources who are bringing their caring heart and their determination and courage to bear on a particular issue. And I find that enormously inspiring. Uh, I'm also inspired by uh, what, what we tend to call whistleblowers. Uh, that's just sort of, that gives you an insight into my, my own personal nature. I just like it when people, you know, kind of raise a little hell and bring to light what a lot of other people would not like brought to light. I find that very inspiring, like, and, and this could probably get me arrested by saying what I'm about to say, so it was nice meeting all of you, but you know, Edward Snowden and like that. Um, I have a lot of respect for the courage it takes to do something like that. So the people that I admire in, in activism uh, are so many. There's, yeah. there's a bakery in New York, you know, that has an open hire policy. It was founded by Bernard Glassman as a Zen Roshi years ago. And they'll, anyone who walks into the bakery has a job, for example. doesn't matter. Nothing else matters. You walk in, you want to work, we'll put you to work and pay you. I just... Isn't that a kind of activism? In other words, it's it's through the culture and policies and practices of your business. It does make a social and political statement. So, and these days, fortunately, because of the internet, there's literally hundreds and thousands of individuals and groups and organizations that we could term activists, or we might even term spiritual activists in the sense their activism is rooted in in love and caring and unity. And I think uh, I would just encourage people to spend some time every day locating those resources, those people, and connecting with them, being inspired by them and supporting them. There are thousands and thousands. Absolutely. Great, yeah. Um, just regarding what you said about uh, Mr. Corbyn, Tim, um, I think like you don't have to necessarily agree with everyone's opinions to to admire them, and I, I have a certain admiration for Jeremy for the reasons you were um, stating. Like I, I would actually pick um, 
John Filger as someone I, I very much admire as an activist who's um, been profoundly anti-war for the best part of 50 years now. And I think there's something going back to the, um, the, the despondency issue of people who just keep going and don't get um, yeah. worn down by it. I don't agree with John Pilger's economic positions all the time, but the, the, um, that's not really the relevant issue when it comes to uh, having an admiration for uh, the way someone has gotten up every morning and, and not got run down by the, the horrendous things they've seen sometimes. And yeah. um, I, I also agree, Robert, that whistleblowers are, are a great um, example of that because of the almost unique nature of the hardships they come up against and the level of incentive there is for them to just keep quiet and yeah. go along. To, uh, to, you know, to, to take an action where the inertia of the status quo is so powerful, I mean, that's almost like launching yourself into space you know, and overcoming gravity without a rocket ship, just through your own the power of your own conscious intention to bring forth something else. So I, I think what it takes to do that, whether it's in a corporate environment or wherever, or even, even you know, spiritually, if next time you're at Sand, Tim, um, do give a talk about social activism. And I'd be interested to see what happens, you know, because I could hook you up with Buddhists for Bush or Buddhists for Trump, whoever, you know, and so let the games begin. I do just want to say finally that you guys ought to keep your eye on America because I think activism in America is about, is about to experience a such mm. a surge, but whether it be spiritual or otherwise, I have a feeling that somewhere around, don't ask me why, the end of January, <laughs> January twentieth is the date that my psychic guides are telling me could precipitate an enormous surge yeah. of social activism and participation. So stay tuned. Maybe it wasn't the final trumpet. Maybe it was the final Trump. Yeah. I, yes. <laughs> well, well said. Very clever. Thank you. Yes, I think that's a fair bet. It's what form that activism takes. I suppose that's going to be the the deciding factor. Um, a final question then to both of you, a final question. Um, I'm really drawn to people who have a realistically positive vision for the future. Okay, not a kind of um, a naive positivity of we're all going to go through some kind of ascension and the world's going to be beautiful or aliens cool. are going to come down and save us. Um, but equally, um, I'm equally turn, turned off by a, a, a realistic uh, negativity of like everything's bad and getting worse and the future tomorrow is going to be worse than today i'm really drawn to people who can grasp the immensity of the struggles and challenges we face and still have a positivity and say but look there's all these opportunities that in 30 40 and 50 years time the world could just be you know we could have eradicated global poverty and, and so on um so i'd like to uh, as a finishing thought to end on a, a kind of uh, upbeat note what would be the kind of like over say the 21st century what realistically do you think could change substantially for the better in the world if just incremental things went the right way and tipping points tipped in a certain direction what kind of world could we potentially emerge into and, and please feel like answer that in as open a way as you know you wish to it doesn't have to be concrete things that change or or maybe it is if you wish to Ooh. 
Nice, uh, nice question to end with. Oh, I've got to go. Sorry, bye bye. <laughs> <laughs> After you, Tim. Um, okay, well, here's here's what's coming up for me, Richard, and and, and so for me, I, I can't say I can't say what things will be because it could go in any direction. Um, but here's 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 what I hope is an, is a big, something of a response to such a deep question. I when I was very much younger, when I was 1920, um, for a period of my life and at university, I was a, a Marxist. And what attracted to me about Marx was this vision of a world in which, uh, well, the, the phrase which I still love to this day was, from each according to their ability, to each according to their need. Mm. And it feels like that, which has its roots in the French Revolution, is a phrase which I captures the vision of the sort of society I would like to live in, mm. where we, which was a family society. You know, in my family, we let everyone contribute what they can and we give everyone what they need. And that seems to be what a real community is. So what attracted me also about Marx was that there was this kind of pseudo-scientific theory which allowed you to think, we're going in that direction. And for various reasons, his ideas didn't work, um, even though the vision was beautiful and went in a different direction. What attracts me so much about the ideas of, uh, of evolution and emergence that I'm exploring in my new book, Soul Story, and why I'm so passionate about wanting to return to political activism, is it feels to me that there, there nevertheless is an evolutionary current, which uh, Robert referenced which is moving in that direction. Mm. Mm. And although it's not linear, and though there may be terrible setbacks along the way, and it may require generation upon generation, I don't know how many, but I have an inner confidence that it is moving in that direction. And that what's required of each one of us is just to play our role, like Robert said, in our daily lives, as much as our activism, both, to envisage that and to act in a way, as Gandhi said, to be the change that we want to see. Mm. If we do that, if we start living in that world now, there's a chance that we can see, or maybe not me and Robert, but you, Richard, can see uh, uh, some real surprisingly positive things, just as I've seen incredibly surprising positive things mm. in my 57. In your how many years, Tim? 57. Oh, my. You're getting up there, my friend. I am. You're close on my heels. I am. Well said. I believe in magical living, which I define as anything can happen at any time in any way, from anywhere, without discernible cause. Because, and I developed that phrase and definition because I kept noticing that in spite of all of my best planning and organizing and prioritizing and efforting in a direction, the things that ultimately manifested in my life were magical. They had very little to do with anything that I was intending or attempting to do. 
Now, so if I extend that same courtesy of possibility into the world, then I'm going to be optimistic, even if not specific, because like Tim, I agree that we're moving individually and communally and, and, and socially, even as a world order, toward what some people might call spiritual, but what to me is really an innate set of qualities about really being a non-dogmatic, curious, caring human being, right? Social justice, equality, all of those kinds of things. So that's my background uh, context for feeling very optimistic even if there doesn't seem to be a lot of evidence to support it, but we can find evidence in, in the communities, the people, the organizations throughout the world that are doing phenomenal, stunning, breathtaking, beautiful things. So we've got to find out about those and focus a lot on those and energize those and embody the principles of those. The other thing is, in terms of this magical living idea, you know, when John F. Kennedy announced we're going to put a man on the moon by the end of the decade, people thought he was on crack. You know, like, what are you, what are you talking about? Well, it happened. There was a time when to think of the Berlin Wall coming down, you're like, that will simply never happen. Yeah. Well, it did, and it happened, like, overnight. If, if not overnight, then, you know, very quickly... So, Richard, my view is it's not, it's not just hopeful or optimistic. It's that I, the way that I see things is that it's inevitable that humanity will continue to evolve and transform and elevate its understanding of itself, of themselves, of ourselves, and how we can interact with each other and the world in an extremely positive and uplifting manner because to me that is innate, that it's who we are and how we want to behave. We've just got to get a lot of the surface stuff out of the way, which is happening. So. I'm more than optimistic. I'm more than hopeful. I'm not naive and I'm not being idealistic. I see it because I look for it in the world. I feel it because I try to enact that myself. And while I'm not a particularly compassionate person in a Buddhist sense, you know, I'm not, I'm not a Buddhist. Um, I'd like to be, but I'm not, but I have a lot of compassion for where we are because I know we're moving from a kind of, uh, from one state to another, which is part of the evolutionary process. You know, if, if you look even at the history of the world in the last couple of hundred years, it's stunning how far and how fast we have moved as a world culture. Absolutely. From where we were 200 years ago, 100 years ago, you know, we put things under an electron microscope. We've 
we've um, you know mapped the genome. I mean, look at the stunning things that we've become aware of, if only in the physical world. And so I think from a moral, ethical, spiritual perspective, we're on the same evolutionary track. And the real thing is, let's just keep playing that game. Let's keep showing up uh, and playing that game of caring and love and understanding because it's the right thing to do. Mm. And then let's see what happens down the line. Yeah, I really like that, um, Robert, with this sense of um, an unpredictability to the world. Like no one even 20 years ago would have predicted that this conversation would be possible. And, you know, I hope, you know, maybe 10 or 12 people will watch it in, in various countries. And this is, this is unimaginable. I don't think anyone predicted this um, would be the way the world will go. So uh, we've, we're just in a situation now where really for the past less than 10 years, um, humanity has had all this information uh, dumped on its doorstep through the internet, through YouTube, through the ability to educate ourselves and understand what's going on in the world that we've never had before. And the consequences, I don't think, I don't think we've even really realized it yet. We're not used to it. We don't know what to do with it. It's kind of information overload. No. Um, and the, when that settles down, the, the consequences of that are um, surely, we can't really picture what effect that will have on education in the future, uh, when people have the ability to network and how that will affect globally and how it will affect the way we organize our societies, our healthcare, our security, and so on. Beautiful. You know, think back 20 years, which is nothing, evolutionary speaking. It's, it's, it's not even a blip on the timeline. We didn't have the internet 20 years ago. It was just emerging. We didn't have social media. We didn't have this platform that connects the world instantaneously you know, one to the other, wherever we are, that in itself is a kind of magical occurrence, the implications of which I think we're only just beginning to fathom. So as another example of, you know, you drop a match somewhere and suddenly it's a huge fire. We've got these matches of possibility, you know, these ignition points, these tipping points of people and organizations and technology that, 20 years ago didn't exist and, so, not, and not just in technology either is it? it's socially and i think it's a really absolutely. it's really good to end always i think with look how many mountains we've climbed because yes. then it's easier to be sisyphus pushing up the next one and and just to just to you know i mean in my lifetime the transformation in the relationship between men and women is completely different totally. historically in a yeah. tiny a few decades thousands yeah. and thousands of years of relationship has been transformed i mean yeah. that is huge the, the stuff around sexuality has been transformed that, these are these are very big these are very big changes and we yeah. kind of don't even notice that they've happened and That's yet they have and when we see all of the you mentioned the war richard you know people a million here i mean but all over the world people came out before a war to say don't have it that yeah. had never happened in the whole of human history. Why should we in England care about people in Iraq? But we did. Right. Now that is a huge jump forward and not just in England, but in the USA, in South Africa, in the Middle East mm -hmm. itself, in Egypt. In the, 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 the human beings could think in that new way. Okay, it didn't stop it, 
but something significant happened yeah. with, a, with a large group of people connecting through care, compassion, and no, not to this. Absolutely. So uh, all, all of these, we, these are huge step forwards, and huge. there will be many, many more. And they've all occurred in really a short period of time. Yeah. You, you know, whereas in the Middle Ages, you, you would go almost for centuries before you could look for that kind of transformation. And here, it's like every few months, there's some kind of shift in the social, political environment. Uh, so, uh, yes, I'm beyond hopeful, beyond optimistic. I am certain that there is an inevitability to the continued movement of these things we've been talking about because I see them as being part of the nature of reality. It's, yes. It's inescapable, it's inevitable, it's the real, and we're just shaking off millennia of bad thinking. And, and I don't know about you both, but you know, in, if, I, if I'm completely honest on my life journey, and it's still the same, there have been periods where I felt like, wow, I'm really learning some wisdom at long last and then the next thing i know there's something from the past and i'm arguing with my wife and da, 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 and this has happened and it's like oh god how did i get back here again yeah. and then i have to come back and then i learn from it and i move on so when i see collectively us do the same thing in yeah. my opinion which yeah. is a lot of what's happening right now it's like the past doesn't just disappear overnight all of those things, all of that fear, all of this, they will rise up again. Of course they will. And then we'll, like we do individually, we have to see them, see what they are, and move beyond them. And I feel like collectively we just do the same thing that we do individually. And we need the same level of um, commitment to what is best and, and optimism. So it's very, I love it that you've taken us to an optimistic place to... to yeah, well, I'm glad we've, we're all agreed about... Um a sense of optimism for the possibilities the future contains because um, Tim, if I could, uh, you know, I'm just, this is totally off book, but one way to minimize the disagreements with your wife is to realize that whatever she says, whenever she says it, she's right. And you're not, this is the great wisdom I eventually arrived at. This is, this is what Sisyphus is trying to understand. Of course with his upward rock and until he gets it he's gonna just be rolling that damn rock so that was just a personal aside to you um for whatever it is <laughs> right well um on that on that personal aside note uh we will start to any final thoughts gentlemen before we we wrap this up I'm, i think that's been a, a a wonderful dialogue thoroughly enjoyed it and um I would like to also say, I'd like to say a big thank you to you, Richard, and, and a huge thank you to Robert for reaching out, um, uh, reaching back, and, and connecting in this way. It's been a real delight to meet a kindred spirit. Likewise, thank you, guys. You know, final words, not, I don't like final, the, the word final. <laughs> um, I prefer to think, you know, we'll just keep going with it. Is... Jump into the middle of it, you know, with all, with everything you are. Show up every moment, empty your tank, give yourself wholeheartedly to whatever is next and keep going. 
that's my final message for today well for today we'll save for today because it's been very enjoyable and thank you guys both i appreciate it hopefully we can record something have another chat in the future sometime so anyone watching please um if you have any thoughts leave leave some comments on youtube or facebook or whatever platform you're on we'll um incorporate them into a future dialogue okay so i'll say um Good evening to you, Tim, and another good morning to you, Robert, and thank you very much indeed. My pleasure.